You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Welcome, welcome back everyone to the Future of Asia podcast uh, series. We are in the, in the middle of a dialogue uh, with Parag Khanna and James Crabtree on the Asian Century Part 2. Gentlemen, in our last episode, we had a great conversation around the complicated, a nuanced and a multipolar world. I asked you both a question. Are you optimistic or pessimistic with regards to the future? You were only allowed to answer in one word, which both of you found to be difficult. So I'm going to allow you now to just expand on that just with a few thoughts. Parag, you said you're optimistic. Why? Well, as you say, I, I, I hesitated quite a while before choosing between those two options. So if you would allow yeah, more than one word, or if you had, I would have said, you know, cautiously or guardedly <laughs> optimistic, because there is a positive scenario for how the world responds to the COVID as a crisis and other challenges that we face right now. And there's a pathway or set of pathways that major political actors or companies and societies can choose. So I see there's multiple tunnels ahead of us. You know, one of them has light at the end of it. Are we going to take that tunnel with the light at the end? That's that's the question, but I can see that pathway. And I think some of my, again, cautious optimism has to do with resilience. So sort of the fact that we were able to, again, act you know, sort of spontaneously and not fully, not comprehensively, but certainly rapidly coordinate a global lockdown this year, the likes of which, you know, humanity has never seen given its incredible complexity and number of actors involved. That to me is staggering, right? A staggering realization that we can have global systemic change very quickly if we want to, and we can have it fast. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to have a global green new deal tomorrow on thing, you know, matters like climate change and suddenly phase out all fossil fuel energy and coordinate global geoengineering projects and so on. But is there a pathway towards certain outcomes that are, you know, in which we, we take the lessons and internalize resilience at a regional, national and, and individual level? Yes, I can, I can see that happening. And I think this has been a wake up call short of an alien invasion right? There's been nothing quite like this in terms of wake-up calls. So I think that, again, the pain and the, the warnings sort of st will stick with us for a long time. And I see a lot of desire to act on it. A lot of the governments or companies or, or social actors and groups that I talk to really are changing uh, 180 degrees in many ways. Yes, and we both had to pause a long time on this and the wheels were turning. There's an awful lot of things to be optimistic about, not just in the post-COVID environment, but in the, the kind of the long term of what the 21st century looks like. At a basic level, the post-Western world is a fantastic thing. It is an absolute nonsense that the world has been run for so long by white people in North America and Europe, a tiny portion of the population, not run, but, but has been dominated, and therefore a world that is more Indian, Chinese, more South than North, in which you have a new kind of ownership system which looks more like the world, that is fantastic. I mean, it's just, it's 
a huge change and and so I that that I think huge reason for optimism and if you just simply look at the record of the last few decades of globalization if your baseline is human flourishing what it is that it, what allows people to live a decent existence then from enormous progress on poverty reduction through to what's going on in the US on racial justice you know you don't have to be a subscriber to the kind of liberal Whig view of history to see that on many dimensions, the world has got vastly better for a vast number of people. And in all sorts of ways, that can continue. But the reason why I said pessimistic is I take a slightly different view of what we take out of the pandemic from Parag. So I like Parag's alien invasion. And there is this sort of sense, the, the Independence Day scenario, that suddenly an external threat will come along and we'll all unite and kind of crack on and get on to work. But unfortunately, the, the lesson of the history is that in situations of geopo geopolitical tension, great power conflict, all of this becomes much more difficult. So even in scenarios short of war, and you have seen a really serious over the last couple of years and in the last year in particular the the re imagination of a world in which the superpowers either directly or via proxies actually fight hot wars with one another over Taiwan. You know, people are thinking about this really seriously in a way that they has been a fringe question. Even in scenarios short of war, what you've seen in the pandemic is yes, there has been some level of cooperation which has been surprising, but it's been an enormous mess. It hasn't been what we needed it to be. The G20 hasn't done what it needed to do. America and China were not able to come together as they did during the financial crisis. We need you know, let's say 100 points of global cooperation, and we've got, I don't know, 10 or 20, we haven't got anywhere near and, and we've been carried through, you know, we're being saved by big pharma at the end of the day, it's the large global pharmaceutical companies that are going to come along and save our bacon, we haven't been able to do this multilaterally, the WHO has done some reasonable work, but it's been hobbled. So that's bad enough with COVID, it looks like touch wood without being complacent that we're going to kind of hobble through this and get back on our feet. But what then really worries is a great power competition managed poorly ends up in a dark place. And then the second thing is climate, which we're going to come to. And so there are reasons to be optimistic about climate that we will talk about. But nonetheless, the scale of the challenge is so staggering that it is going to require levels of cooperation that are, you know, absolutely the world on its A game. And it's really not clear to me whether we're going to be able to pull that off. So there are very exciting technological solutions. Parag just mentioned geoengineering, which is slightly more imaginative. But even within the realm of the normal solutions, there's lots of interesting things to talk about. But that combination of global geopolitical competition back in an area where it gets really dangerous and climate coming together with all of the new and unpredictable politics of climate, which are going to emerge, all of those divisions that are going to be like the pandemic squared over the course of this century as this really begins to bite, those two things combined make me very anxious. I'd say there's two models for how geopolitical competition plays out, even in, especially focusing just on proxy states. You know, in during the Cold War, it was a race to the bottom, obviously. So divide and conquer, you might call it, prevent falling dominoes in the other direction, obviously supporting military dictatorships and this kind of thing. Today's proxy competition looks a little bit different. And there's a set of countries, which again, are not really tipping points for global order anyway. So in, in some ways, it's that the issue itself is not the most relevant question for whether or not we come out ahead. But generally speaking, when you see the kind of proxy competition or, you know, we were talking about it in the last episode around how Belt and Road has evoked these strong and semi-coordinated Western responses, including with Japan and Australia and others as, as allies, that's not a race to the bottom, it's a race to the top. 
right? It's countries saying, wait a minute, how can I actually play off these competing suitors and offers against each other in order to improve my own infrastructure, create jobs, diversify technology, diversify economies, bring in technology and so forth. And that's actually what is happening in many far more significant countries than the places like, say, Venezuela or Sudan, you know, where we've been seeing the kind of arms dealing and horse trading among powers. So for the, the significant countries in the world today are actually taking advantage of geopolitical competition, proxy competition, in order to get the best deal for themselves. That's what I call multi-alignment, right? And that's what you see the Central Asian countries doing, Southeast Asian countries doing. And these are the important swing states. These are not peripheral, marginal countries. I don't want to disparage entire regions, but I mean, you know, whether or not what's happening in you know, Congo between IMF negotiators and China is, is less significant for the future of world order than how it's playing out in Central Asia and Southeast Asia. And in these regions, you actually see governments much more sophisticated because they've lived through colonialism, they've lived through the Cold War, and they know better than to simply be carved up again. So that, that's part of why I think that you can actually have a race to the top model. And again, the, the Belt and Road and its competitors are the best proxy for seeing that. I want to jump in and, and start focusing on a few of the countries in and around Asia. James, you've spent a lot of time looking at India over the last uh, many years. What does the world have in store for India in the next couple of years, in your view? So there's there's a real bull case for India, uh, which I would like to make because I lived there for five years. I wrote a book about it. I feel great fondness towards India, and it has enormous potential. I mean, it starts with the talent of its people. If you look everywhere around the world, that there is an Indian diaspora. Indians are the smartest, the richest, the best educated. It's true here in Singapore. It's true in Silicon Valley. It's true in the United Kingdom. It also, as Parag mentioned, it's a technology superpower. It has enormous soft power. It has the English language. You know, there's all sorts of things that India has going for it. And, and so I think if India can follow the sort of reformists, technocratic development path that other countries around Asia have managed, then it has a bright future. And whatever happens, India is going to be a more significant part of the Asian conversation. And you've seen a huge change over the last five years, which is not so much to do with the economics and more simply to do with Mr. Modi. And he, he, has a, he and his team have a much more muscular sense of India's interests in the world, predominantly in South Asia, which is India's backyard. And so they've been tussling with the Chinese over you know, India's natural role as top dog in South Asia, but also, you know, you see India moving further out into China's backyard and beginning to kind of test off to the, the east in various different ways. So I think you'll see India be a much more significant player. And, and around the region, that would be welcome. Clearly, the US and India are growing much closer to one another, and they will continue to do so. Southeast Asia is desperate for India to become an economic counterweight to China and, and to begin to kind of take its economic position as the other, you know, the, like if China is one engine on the Asian jumbo jet, then India is the other. And so at the moment, you have one very big Chinese engine and one slightly spindly looking Indian engine. And if you're sitting in Singapore or Malaysia or Thailand, then you're desperate for the moment when the Indian engine is as big as the Chinese, because A, that's great for you, more trade, more money, but also it means you've got geopolitical balance in the region. And that, you know, so, so that in a sense is the bull case for India. The problem for India, however, I mean, A, COVID has been very, very bad and it continues to be very bad. And so it has huge, dent dented hugely the country's economy in the short run 
and will mean that India's economy is going to be only about the size that it would have been had COVID not happened by about 2030 on the way that we're looking at it. So that really does fit most people's definitions of a, of a lost decade. We said right at the beginning in our previous episode how lucky we all felt to live in Singapore and how important having high state capacity has been for any nation trying to get through this pandemic. And so India in common with Pakistan and a few other places like Indonesia and the Philippines, the pandemic has really found you out if you have a state that doesn't work properly. All of the countries that have done worst to some degree, also including the United States, have been ones where their governments didn't work as well as people thought that they should do. So that's a big problem for India in particular. So it's a kind of, as I think is often the case with India, it's going to be a case of of kind of, you know, sort of two steps forward, one steps back, huge potential, but real challenges. And at a time in which India's government is becoming less technocratic, more nationalistic, sort of more populist. And so there's a hanging question over the the direction that India is going to go in. Thank you. Let's shift and spend a couple of minutes on ASEAN, if you don't mind, uh, Parag. You know, what are the big lines for ASEAN in the next few years? Well, ASEAN obviously has enormous internal inequality. Let's remember, it's obviously not a country. It's just a grouping. It's at least more or less contiguous, but you have very important island uh, nations as well, like Indonesia and, and the Philippines. But if ASEAN were a country, by the way, just to put in perspective, if it were a country of 700 million people, which would still not make it the largest country in the world, it would be by far the most unequal right? Because of the vast range of, of incomes and wealth, you know, Brunei and Singapore on the one hand, and, you know, East Timor and Myanmar on the other. So there's a long way to go. And this is one of the positive cases, if you will, you know, you have several hundred million people in ASEAN who are still belong to an economic underclass, but the governments, the states that they live in are generating the capacity to actually build the infrastructure and deliver the kind of connectivity and public services that these people need. So the, this, the, the engaged citizen base, the active consumer base in ASEAN is going to or just organically grow on the back of the kinds of phenomena around poverty reduction and public investment and so forth that have characterized the region over the past decade. So there's good reason. Then, you know, as, as, as we were discussing in a previous episode, the decades of learning that the region has gone through in terms, again, the 98 Asian financial crisis, the global financial crisis, and today realizing that they are their own best line of defense in terms of economic revival, bring down those barriers, you know, have RCEP and, you know, obviously free trade and movement mobility within ASEAN really does help as a form of, you know, economic uh, stimulus. And there's a lot of learning going on across borders within ASEAN. We see this obviously here in Singapore, kind of the epicenter of that and the, the lessons that can can radiate around uh, governance of public institutions or how to regulate foreign investment or how to structure your, your uh, stock market listings and this kind of thing. All of that is also happening. So governments are not burying their heads in the sand. They realize that they have to seize these opportunities. So that's another part of the, the positive case for the region. And again, the third, of course, variable is the, the geopolitical, right? The intense competition globally that's pulling supply chains out of China is directly benefiting this region. Uh, let's remember that the story did begin more than a decade ago before we were talking about a so-called new Cold War. Japan's uh, FDI diversion into Southeast Asia began in the late 2000s, right? So it's just an acceleration of what had been happening. And again, it's it's a, a strong case for this region. And again, that accelerates the kinds of pragmatic policy
policy shifts that this region needs to undertake. Remember, it's been getting in its own way to a large degree. You know, I study a lot of different post-colonial regions of the world and compare them to each other. And, and, and this is not a region that's being invaded by foreign powers, such as what the Middle East has experienced, for example, right? And so there's many of the hindrances, if you will, to achieving the full potential of ASEAN countries are actually self-inflicted uh, wounds that can be overcome. And which are the countries you would look to? Well, each of them in their own way. Again, because you're talking about companies that countries at very different strata, you know, of economic uh, development. So for each of them, there's a different prescription per se, whether it's political or, or regulatory. So I think that, you know, they each belong fairly, you know, sort of in that in that tier. Let me give you an interesting example, though. The World Bank has data on the estimated size of the black market or gray market, you know, for countries all over the world. And they estimate that the gray market or again, black market or just, you know, untaxed kind of share of uh, the economy in both in Indonesia and Thailand is really among the highest in the world, certainly the highest in Asia. And it's estimated to be somewhere around the around the range of 40 to 50% of GDP. Now, Indonesia is already a $1 trillion dollar economy. Thailand is not far away from a trillion dollar economy. So just think about how much capital assets and again, unregulated activities going on that could be brought above board through digitization and, and reforms that these governments actually do very much want to undertake. So that's a great example of unrealized potential, the low hanging fruit that can be exploited and the opportunities now and governments that again are saying they want to do those things. One, one thing I would say about ASEAN, a big change that, that I see is that you have in ASEAN this heritage, an ideological heritage of small government. So what Prague's talking about in Indonesia, Indonesia's tax to GDP ratio is still tiny. I mean, I, I think it's 12% uh, of GDP compared to, you know, I know 50% in France. So you still have these small governments, even Singapore and Taiwan are barely 20%. They said Korea... Uh, isn't in ASEAN, but is, is bigger. One of the things that is going to happen after the pandemic is you're going to see the end of this heritage, the death of the Southeast Asian, Asian small state tradition. That's partly because of COVID and all of the vast amounts of money that are being spent on stimulus programs, which will in one way or another end up with bigger government. It's in particular about the, the era of what Sebastian Mallaby calls the age of magic money, low interest rates, cheap cash, which means that the At the moment, you have to be a real basket case to be under threat of downgrade. You can borrow much more, even if you're an EM. Eventually, that money has to be paid back, but you're not going to have to pay it back yet. And then you have longer term factors that countries, particularly the richer countries, are having to cope with. Climate is one. You need big, big, big state investment in, in renewable energy. Demographics is another. So aging, you need to, you can't just let old people rot. You've got to kind of give them pensions. And so if you add all of these things up, the spur of COVID, the lower for longer interest rate environment and then the pressing need to invest in what we think of as long-term challenges, but which are actually right now challenges. You know, you can't do these in 10 years' time. If you start doing climate in 10 years' time, we're all toast. That is going to mean the end of this ideological Lee Kuan Yew, Mahathir Mohamed, sort of we must have a small frugal state and we look kind of down on the Europeans for their big wasteful welfare states. You're going to have a much more, it's not going to be European in size and scope, but it's going to be larger and it's going to be much more activist and interventionist. And that's true in social policy. It's true in industrial policy, in technology policy, a whole range of ways in which, I mean, you might expect this from the guy on the podcast who works in the School of Government, but you're going to see a much more substantial role in this new era everywhere, but particularly markedly in Asia, given its heritage of a role for kind of big government. But there's a very strong economic case for everything that James is advocating, which is that even though the sort of state sector as a share of GDP or its tax receipts has been relatively low, the 
public investment has been so high in areas like infrastructure. And if you think about from the just this just only from the environmental standpoint, the volume of stranded assets, you know, in a climate, extreme climate change scenario that will therefore just be wasted capital. There's a, such a huge need to reform the way in which uh, public investment is done and thinking about sustainability. And so, yes, the government has to, you know, pay attention to scientific forecasts, climate forecasts, these kinds of things in order to plan future infrastructure and to be more innovative about how that's done. And that's, again, enormous opportunity to build the next generation of infrastructure sustainably in this region. So, yeah, that's a good way in which uh, states can be more activist here, not necessarily whether they're bigger or smaller, that rem will remain to be seen in terms of the share of GDP and so forth. But will they be smarter? No question. Well, I don't think that's really in, there's absolutely no way that they could be smaller. I mean, if it's smaller, that would be disastrous. As countries get richer, they spend more of their income on government. And that's true. Or it's almost a universal law, right? The, the middle classes demand public goods. You, you, you know, so the, the, the Asian states are going to get bigger, and one would have expected that to happen. I suppose what I'm saying is they're going to get bigger and more interventionist faster because of the combination that I talked about, the, the post-COVID settlement, magic money, and then these challenges that only really governments, albeit governments working with the private sector, but only really governments can can kind of create the right framework for these challenges to be solved. And that's especially true on climate. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. So let's let's double click now on climate. You you've mentioned it um, uh, a couple of times, James. So what what does happen on climate? And let's f focus on Asia. What are the big climate risks? What are some of the mitigation things that you see happening across the region? Well, so again, I think we have seen. Let's start from a point of view of optimism. So this is an incredibly difficult challenge that the world has to face in a situation which, as I said, the reason ultimately why I said pessimistic in your question at the end of the previous episode was this combination of geopolitics and climate that are incredibly hard challenges, as hard as anything that I can ever think about the world having to deal with. On the other hand, you've had some pretty good news recently. You've had China's very visionary carbon neutral by 2060 pledge, which is enormous. Potentially, when the history books are written, will be seen as comparably important to anything else that has happened in this year or in recent history. You've also had Japan and Korea having net neutral by 2050 pledges. And, you know, you have the underlying economics of climate. So, the you know, solar, the IEA recently said, is now the cheapest uh, source of power in human history, um, and it's only getting cheaper. You have imaginative mega projects, for instance, the Australian project in the Northern Territory, where they're going to set up an enormous solar farm and lay a cable to here in Singapore. The notion being that Australia will become the Saudi Arabia of solar and that they will then wire, wire this into the ASEAN grid, then potentially into the India South. Asia grid. There's all sorts of things that are happening as private capital in particular pours into this, this area. But still, what you need to do is, it's not simple, it's not complicated, I mean, but it is difficult. You need vast public investment, public-led investment to kind of coordinate this private investment. You need a steadily 
increasing price of carbon, which is only really going to come through a tax. But anyway, the price of carbon has to keep going up and it, it that's complicated. And then you need, this needs to be just. There needs to be some form of redistribution between the rich world and the poor world and between, or the, the, the developed world and the emerging world, and also within country, you know, areas like ASEAN. So as Parag said, somewhere like ASEAN, you know, you have rich countries like Singapore, but you also have Myanmar and Laos. And, and so you need the, you know, the strong have to help the weak. And all of this requires kind of political cooperation at a level in which political cooperation is in short supply. And so I, I don't, I think the, the good thing is that we know what we need to do, roughly, I- excluding black swan scenarios that people aren't coping with. But let's say we're talking about one and a half to two degrees warming, and this is the way that it now looks in the climate models. We know what we have to do. We're off track, quite a long way off track, but it's possible. And there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. But as I say, it's really difficult. It's going to require a lot of imagination, a lot of statecraft, and you know, a lot of really good ideas to be able to, to do what needs to be done. You know, Asia has the largest number of people in the world anyway, and so also, therefore, the largest number exposed to floods, drought, rising sea levels, and so forth. So, But we still have very fragmented approaches. I would like to see, in, you know, because we're not really going to have genuine global environmental governance, you know, because, you know, the Paris Agreement, even if countries sign it, is really, again, a set of pledges that's looking at the vast, you know, distant future. What I would like to see within Asia is a lot more technology transfer around climate adaptation and risk mitigation and and alternative new technologies, energy in particular, but also agriculture in terms of resilient agriculture, all of these things. And there there's lots of bilateral action going on. Obviously, China is the largest exporter of solar panels in the world by far. So that's just one uh, example of that. And of course, a lot of the um, innovations in battery technology are happening here in Asia. Hydrogen energy, right? Japan, South Korea, soon also China, right? A lot of uh, experimentation and deployment going on in hydrogen. So there's a a possibility of all of this, again, accruing, agglomerating from the bottom up, and you can start to have an Asian environmental technology framework that applies to industry, that applies to transportation, eventually aviation, data centers, certainly electricity grids, James mentioned earlier, high-voltage transmission uh, projects, these kinds of things. It, It is possible here in Asia. The money is there right? The, the technological capability is there. The frameworks for the technical exchange are there. So I'd like to see that be really priority number one for Asian countries. I mean, if you pull back the lens a little bit here, both our conversation in the previous episode and in general, the conversation that we're having and that you and McKinsey have is about the nature of globalization. And so the big question here is how does climate fit into our understanding of globalization? We have been talking about deglobalization, globalization and it's a very contradictory picture because on the one hand globalization makes it easier to solve climate change because you have the you can in a globalized world have global standards you can have global prices you, you, it sort of gives you leverage on the other hand climate change is going to create enormous new divisions that we haven't even begun to conjure with so if you think about the 
divisions that have opened up during the pandemic and how obvious they now seem between the red zone, the green zone, the orange zone, you know, the countries that are doing well, the countries that are not doing well, the countries that are rich and have access to the vaccines, the countries that don't, and how difficult that politics is going to be. Climate politics is going to be an order of magnitude, many orders of magnitude worse. And in particular, we're eventually going to get to a point where we're not just talking about Australian wildfires and Californian wildfires, hurricanes. I mean, if you think about the, the, this season's natural catastrophes in the United States have just been extraordinary. We've already been through not just A to Z in the names of the hurricanes. We're already most of the way through the Greek alphabet. I mean, it's an extraordinary change, but we haven't yet got to the point when people have realized that actually there's nothing that you can do in the rich world to stop this unless India and China do their part as well. And the politics of that could be very positive because it could mean that you have the kind of alien invasion scenario in which everyone decides, okay, we've really got to pull together and we've got to make sure that this is done in a way that is equitable. The best technology has to be given to the countries that need to change the most. Or it could just be very poisonous in which the kind of Trumpian approach to this, which is, well, we're not going to do anything until India does something. And you get a kind of race to the bottom. So that's very complicated. Equally, thinking more pragmatically here in Asia and in a country like Singapore, very trade-centric, then climate is very soon going to begin to upend our notions of what what trade means. So, for instance, you're going to get to see carbon border adjustments brought in, or you're going to have to see that in which the price of goods is a, has a carbon accounting. So, if, for instance, you've taken all of your polluting industries in the American Midwest and sent them off to China, then you have to kind of begin to work out what the right kind of carbon budget is for that, and how do you appropriately price carbon-intensive goods that are being traded. That is a huge challenge that trade-dependent nations of the sort that all of the advanced Asian economies are, are going to have to grapple with. How do you overlay a climate layer on top of our globalization layer? And we already, you know, we can argue the toss. We don't quite know where globalization is heading. It's complicated, you know, deglobalizing to some degree, technology is pushing it forward, politics is pushing us back. And climate, when it really begins to bite, which we haven't quite got there, there yet, but over the next five or 10 years, with every year that passes, it's going to be more and more obvious to people what's happening in the world, it's going to make globalization more complicated too. I think what we're already seeing is something that is not certainly not simpler, but more tangible approach to grappling with these challenges than this notion of a global carbon tax regime, the carbon, you know, the border adjustments and so forth, because that, as you know, is going to be so fraught politically that it's not likely to ever actually happen. What we are seeing happen is attacking this through the supply chain, right? So the cost of uh, procuring resources and again, the sort of, you know, the regulations around supply chain inputs, these kinds of things are becoming already part of every company's, you know, mapping of their of their costs, so to speak, and internalizing those externalities into the supply chain. And that, that's done through regulatory pressure at the national level in, in wealthy economies through their pension funds and regulators and stunned through stock exchanges and the FTSE and others. That's happening already. And I think that's a fairly positive sign. The other piece of it, as, as James Riley pointed out, again, Asia being an epicenter of this, when we talk about China and India, they're not really waiting for whether or not Trump signs a Paris agreement or the next president does. They are either importing or developing 
the key technologies to reduce their own emissions in their own interests, right? So whether it is China and solar and nuclear, India also with nuclear too, to some degree, solar, biomass, you know, the, the thing is that these countries themselves are not unitary in the same way the United States isn't. The US has clean energy leaders, but it also has had a government that doesn't promote clean energy, right? And wants to support fossil fuels. Well, when you think about China and India, obviously that applies in spades, even China, where on the one hand, you can have huge investments in renewable and alternative energy, but on the other hand, still be building lots and lots of coal-fired power plants. And the same applies to India as well. So, you know, that those domestic issues and challenges of, in one case, democracy, in one case, a non-democracy still, those aren't going to be arbitrated or settled in Washington, let's face it. Thank you. Listen, uh, we're going to start wrapping this podcast. The title of the podcast is The Asian Century. So I'm going to ask each of you, are we on track? Is the Asian century, does it continue to be on track? And I'm also going to ask you again, are you positive? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? And this time, allow you a little bit more than the one word that did at the end of last episode. James. I think in a curious way, the pandemic has only made the path to the Asian century more obvious and faster. Look at who's done well in the pandemic. All, all, almost all of the leading countries are East Asian advanced technocratic democracies and China. Look at who's leading the economic recovery out of the pandemic almost all Asian countries. Look at the reaction, the sensible reaction that we've talked about to Biden's election and the heavy, heavy caveats that have to be put around the re-engagement of the world's still largest economy and by far most important military power, the United States. Uh, I think in this part of the world, often you, you somehow, and the trick of the light is China's already the top dog. You have to remember the US remains the world's most important nation in most respects. I, I think in a sense, the path to the Asian century is only clearer after the the, the pandemic and, and will continue to be so. And it will not just be a path that is being pioneered by China, but also other parts of Asia as well in all of its diversity, which is something that Parag deals with very nicely in his books. I'm going to stick with what I said at the end of the last episode, which is to say that I, I'm going to say I'm cautiously pessimistic. People say they're cautiously optimistic about things. So I'm cautiously pessimistic because I think uh, you, you've seen Singaporean Prime Minister Mr. Lee recently wrote a very good essay in Foreign Affairs, the American Journal of the Council of Foreign Relations. And so it was a plea for the US and China to kind of get their act together and stop fighting very over 8,000 words. But that was basically what he was saying. You know, we don't want you to fight. We want you both to be in Asia. We want to do business with both of you. You need to come up with some kind of agreement where you're not scrapping all the time so that we can kind of go about our business and solve the common challenges we all need to solve. And in that, the headline, if I remember correctly, was, you know, that, that the Asian century is at risk. And so that, I think, is what I would say. The reason why I said pessimistic last time, great power competition plus climate puts the Asian century at risk. The notion that, in a sense, the Asian century will be one of prosperity coming together and Asian leadership as opposed to Western leadership. There's a very clear other scenario in which the kind of economic growth that you've seen in the aftermath of the Cold War is dragged down by geopolitical competition and other things, principally climate, but also you get uh, a kind of political difficulties. You have to remember that the history of Asia over the last three or four decades has been one of sort of ec an extraordinary economic performance in the face of basic kind of governance dysfunction. 
this isn't something like the European Union, which is run for all of its flaws in a way that you can kind of put on an org chart, as we said in the first episode. It's a big mishmash of different overlapping kind of governance structures, many of which, when you boil them down, come down to no governance at all or a very light level of governance. And so although Asia has had this extraordinary 40, 50-year period of, of economic growth, it hasn't made a lot of progress on its political governance. And so now you reach the crunch point. A, you know, you have geopolitical competition in a way that's much more profound than when China was rising as opposed to when it has risen. And you have other really big challenges, particularly climate. And so there is definitely a sense in which the potential of the Asian century can be undermined by this and potentially in quite a profound way. And so that is why I'll, I'll stick with my guns and say that I'm cautiously pessimistic and I'll leave Parag to be optimistic. I think cautiously pessimistic would be a great book title, by the way. Uh, you, should, you should have put that in the hopper for the next few years. First of all, I think we're well into what is a de facto Asian century. Whether or not people in certain quarters or geographies realize it is more or less irrelevant to the fact of the matter, the, the empirical reality of a global population, demographics, and economy that is centered around this region that not only had the momentum prior to the pandemic, but retains it in the aftermath of the pandemic. None of that is premised on Asia necessarily remaining peaceful in the way that it has for the past three decades. Yes, Asians have done a good job of separating their geopolitical tensions from their geoeconomic convergence, and that may or may not last. I'm fully aware and cognizant and, and predict certain specific conflicts uh, militarily from breaking out at, in various parts of Asia in the years ahead. I don't see any of them derailing the full Asian story and, again, its collective momentum. And those are two different things. Uh, a war in, again, w w specific areas is has a very different impact in a region as vast and diverse as Asia as it would be if you map it on to, say, Europe 1914. So I think that as much as I'm very mindful of those geopolitical stresses, I don't think it, it they don't collectively instantiate, you know, sort of immediately and bring down all of Asia. There, there is no bringing down all of Asia, so to speak. So that's not my concern. What's important, though, is to remember that the character, this, this the global sort of systemic characteristic of Asia's rise is different from the European world order or the American order of previous centuries. Europe Asia, the Asian century doesn't mean that Asia dominates the world. It's again, you know, Asia rightfully taking its place alongside Western civilizations and powers that have shaped so much of what has been and continues to be the sort of global rules of the game and frameworks of interaction and still represents the other 50% of global GDP. So the difference being, again, that whereas the United States led the world it, you know, by the mid 20th century, at, at which point it represented a full 50-50% of global GDP, China is a superpower today at a point of history where it represents only 15, 1.5% of GDP. So Asia's rise reaffirms the multipolarity of the world. It does not in any way, shape, or form denote a decline of the West at all. So it's an Asian-led century in what remains and will remain a multipolar world. And that's what's truly unique about today. You know, we've never had a truly globally distributed power 
system with these independent poles of power, such as uh, Europe and, and, and the United States and multiple Asian powers represent literally never in history has been there in that kind of a, again, global multipolar interdependent system. That's, I think, important as the context to understand Asia's rise, because otherwise we tend to view things in this binary kind of way, either it's West or it's East, either it's China or it's America. That is in no way, shape or form the historical trajectory and need not be and, and won't be as far as I'm concerned. And that is one very good reason to be op cautiously optimistic about the future, because the degree of connectivity remains very strong. The incentive of producer nations, of advanced nations, of innovative nations to share and sell uh, their goods around the world and in ways that can help to them to modernize and become more sustainable is actually a very high incentive, the incentive for cooperation despite the conflicts that inevitably will occur, you know, remain strong even before, during, and after such conflicts transpire. So I think there's a level of global, you know, connectivity baked into the system that, that actually encourages and, and, and stimulates a long-term resilience that I think we now have, even as some places, you know, lack it and fall through the cracks. But, you know, there's this saying, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, right? But, and there are links that in some ways appear to be falling off the chain, especially right now when we see the, the suffering and the failure of many countries in light of COVID. But what is also happening at the same time is the strengthening of many links that are getting stronger as a result of participating in this, in this global system. And again, Asia is a lot of those links in the overall kind of, you know, global chain. So yeah, I'll say, I'll still say cautiously optimistic, but we'll see. Listen, I suspect that we could continue talking for a few more hours and that we might not end up agreeing on, on, on these things at the end of the day, but I'm going to just say thank a huge thank you to both of you, to Parag and to James. I'm not going to try to summarize. I will say that we live in a increasingly complicated, nuanced, multipolar world. I think the Asian century continues to be on track. And I think we will continue the discussion around are we optimistic or are we pessimistic? That will continue. But thank you to both of you and dear everyone. You've been listening to Parakana, the founder and managing partner of FutureMap, and to James Crabtree, associate professor at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy. I hope everybody had a great time listening into this fascinating debate. Thank you all and have a great day. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Facebook.